sound. What is solastalgia? Solastalgia is a neologism based on two Latin roots, solace and desolation, with the ancient Greek suffix alga added to the end which means pain or sorrow. The short definition of solastalgia is the homesickness you have when you're still at home. It's feeling dislocated from your home when you haven't gone anywhere due to external phenomena, such as climate change. Solastalgia was coined by Australian philosopher Glenn Albrecht in 2003 after Albrecht's confrontation with open pit coal mining in the Upper Hunter region of New South Wales and Australia. Hundreds of square kilometers of natural land and farms were dug up, blown up, and completely altered for the coal that lies underneath. The locals of the Upper Hunter region were experiencing extreme distress, melancholia, and desolation after seeing their beautiful homeland destroyed by the open pit coal mining. Most families in the area have lived there for generations. It was the only home they've ever known. Albrecht realized there was no word in the English language that defined the combination of feeling nostalgic and melancholia due to the loss of your own habitat. So he created the word solastalgia. Solastalgia is different from nostalgia in that it is a lived experience of the change. Locals lived with this land for their entire lives before seeing it destroyed before their eyes by forces that they had no control over. The same happens with extreme weather events due to climate change. A year after Hurricane Katrina hit, a survey found that one in five survivors was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Thoughts of suicide more than doubled. Over a decade later, at least 10,000 people were still getting treatment for trauma related to the storm. Everyone is feeling climate anxiety, whether they know it or not, whether they like it or not, and whether they admit it or not. may recover from the physical impacts and they can restore and rebuild and whatever injuries they suffered but it's really the long-term impacts which are the most injurious it's oftentimes what we can't see solastalgia is a term that refers to the pain the sadness at the loss of treasured places especially from climate extreme weather events A place that you know, that you love, and that gave you a sense of belonging and a sense of security, maybe even a sense of awe. And the recognition that that is lost forever is a deeply emotionally painful experience. Since 2008, climate change has forced nearly 30 million people out of their homes each year. Climate refugees often don't get the chance to see their home change slowly over time, like the locals of the Upper Hunter region. They're literally forced to flee from it in order to survive. However, Solastalgia still felt deeply in both examples. A place that you love and that gave you a sense of belonging and security is suddenly lost forever. That's a profoundly painful experience to have to go through for anyone. Children aren't as easily able to cope as most adults. They're more likely to develop long-term stress and feelings of deep anxiety about an uncertain future that they'll have to deal with more directly. Polluted oceans, oil spills, coal factories dominating a small town, plastic flooding the streets of villages, once lush forest either burning away in massive wildfires or being cut down acre by acre every single day. It can be, in a word, overwhelming. Dear patient, 
We all know that the world is in a state of ecological crisis. Many of us have trouble dealing with the consequences. We might feel afraid, angry, depressed, or simply insecure. The more we hear about climate change, the more we sense how little humankind can do to prevent the worst from happening. Academic research on the psychological effects of this realization is still in its earliest stages. Yet, there are some studies on the way these environmental concerns, together with our inborn connectedness to nature, can affect our sense of well-being. Our aim is to help you cope with the existential fears that result from eco-anxiety. We will give you the opportunity to think about your concept of nature. What does it mean today? Being in tune with the natural world strengthens your mental health and prepares you for taking action. So let's get started. At times when we are trying to pay for the bills that come in from extreme weather events, the money that's left over for discretionary things like mental health benefits is the first to be taken off a budget. Young people are terrified, they're angry, and they're baffled. They do not understand why more action isn't being taken. The storms outside are certainly important, but it's really the storms inside, the psychological toll inside, that has the power to take us down. You asked me about why I moved to Blue Mountains, and I guess, um, like everybody else here, I wanted to be close to nature. And um, I, it's not that I do get inspired by nature, I do get inspired by anything that surrounds me. And, um, and nature is everywhere, it's in Sydney and it's in Blue Mountains, it's just the amount of it. <laughs> it it's, it's bigger and stronger here. Moving to the mountains was um, very um, important because what, that's what I started to experience. I started to experience more nature. And, um, and also being here through difficult times, so through the bushfires, and um, I was really affected. And that's one of the questions you asked me about if I had experience of celestalgia personally, and surely I did, and that was end of 2019 when the bushfires were so strong that um, everything was changing. It's just, um, it's extraordinary. And today we are, we're surrounded by fires all around the world, in Greece and Turkey and Russia and Siberia. It's just, um, we know that we caused it. So um, how do we keep going? This anxiety is very, very strong. We've all experienced some solastalgia in our lives. I'm 33 years old, and there's a noticeable difference in the four seasons compared to when I was a kid. Every season had distinct characteristics and a reliable time when they came and went. Now, every season seems... different. Where I live in the Midwest of the United States, winters are less intense. That seems like a plus, but for the planet, it's a bad sign. Summers are more intense and more deadly. Fall is delayed. Summer cuts straight through September into October, and then it's cut short by winter, leaving only a short time to enjoy the crisp fall weather that defines the season. Spring is long, cold, and rainy, only to rapidly turn into scorching heat, seemingly overnight. It's nowhere near what the locals of the Upper Hunter region feel, or the millions living along the coastline, or the millions of climate refugees who have to start from scratch somewhere else. 
But I feel it when I think about the seasons, the oceans, the forest, the earth. And that's why we decided to have a show. Um, the nostalgia when we discussed it some years ago, um, how to cope with this, how to, how to, how to be with this. And um, Joe looks at a very important part of nostalgia when uh, actually allowing the grief to happen and dealing with the grief. I guess my role was to, to imagine something new, where you can go from there, from that place. Once you acknowledge that, once you experience the grief, you realize that things were wrong. Where do you go from there? Uh, the word solastalgia was coined by philosopher Glenn Albrecht to describe what he calls the homesickness when you're still at home. So this feeling of watching the place you live um, come under attack, um, seeing more broadly the world around us uh, changing dramatically and for the worse, and the feelings of trauma that that creates. And it was that same kind of light bulb moment when I heard about solastalgia. This is a very important term, not just within the legal context and the psychological context, but actually I think it is about healing. We begin to heal that collective trauma when we're able to identify it for what it is and give it proper name. Solastalgia is more a chronic condition, slow change leading to uh, a, a, a deep emotional distress. So, eco-anxiety came from a journalist writing about uh, pollution on the east coast of America uh, in, in the 1990s, and then has now entered into academic discourse. It's a generalised feeling of anxiety and uncertainty about the state of your environment and the feeling that it's not going to do you any good, that in fact your safety and your needs are not going to be met in the environment that you're, uh, you're living in. On a 47 degree day at Wallaby Farm, I felt the, it was so hot that the eucalyptus forest was beginning to just uh, exude volatile organic compounds. Uh, eucalyptus oil is explosive. And I thought at that moment that it would only take a tiny spark somewhere and the whole landscape would just blow up. It was like living in, you know, uh, close to a petrol station. Someone's just dropped the hose and there's petrol going everywhere and you can smell it. So that was a disturbing feeling. So, so, so disturbing. I thought I can't uh, understand how we could continue to live in this kind of heat. I mean, 47 is right at the limit of what humans can tolerate. And there were birds dying in the air and then hitting the ground on that day. And that's not unusual. As soon as you get over 45, there are some creatures that can't live. In the 1960s, psychoanalyst Eric Fromm coined the term biophilia, describing man's love for nature that seems to be deeply rooted in our genes. A person who lives life to the fullest, he says, will feel attracted to processes of life and prosperity in all spheres. Regardless of a person's origin, we all seem to perceive certain landscapes as aesthetically pleasing. The prospect of such a welcoming natural environment suggests a return to the primordial sources of life itself. Although we feel more and more attracted to nature, we are also ruining it. 
and perhaps it is because we destroy nature that our love still grows. Critical claim that we are technologically advanced, but culturally backwards. We cherish a highly romanticized image. The natural world we love is a product of imagination, a construction of picturesque and highly saturated, dreamlike images. Our perception is as idealized as it is unrealistic. Spending time in nature has positive effects on physical and mental health. You live in the city and you don't have the opportunity to integrate a leisurely walk in the forest into your everyday life? Don't worry, I have good news for you. The Swedish scientist Roger Ulrich made headlines in the 1980s when he proved that patients recover faster when they have the opportunity to look into the green. The interesting thing is that it doesn't seem to matter whether it's real nature seen through a window or a picture of nature. Ulrich equipped an intensive care unit in Sweden with different images and then observed the healing process of 160 patients with heart diseases. The result of the study was that those who had the image of a wooded riverbank in front of them recovered faster than those who could not see a picture or only an abstract one. Okay, that was lesson one. I hope you enjoyed it and stay tuned. So Solastalgia, the, the image of why I wanted to use the slides is that that's the Hunter Valley under open cut coal mining and there's 500 square kilometres of mining like that. That's very close to the, uh, the town of Bolga that uh, Polly mentioned as part of the, the court case with Solastalgia. So I worked pro bono to, as an as a, um, expert witness for the, for the village to try and fight their response to this kind of environmental distress. So the definition of solastalgia is this lived experience of negatively perceived environmental change. And it doesn't matter whether it's coal mining, gas fracking, airport noise, intensive chicken sheds, the local quarry, uh, whatever it is that's happening in your environment that you find uh, is, a, uh, is being negatively perceived by you is a loss of something which you find valuable, uh, your love of place or sometimes described as your sense of place. It's also connected to the sense that it's, uh, it's coming into your life and overwhelming you. You're feeling powerless to prevent it. So power and power relationships are an important part of this. And I did create a bumper sticker version of Solastalgia, which is this one at the bottom. It's the homesickness you have when you're still at home. So you're at home and your home environment, in effect, is moving away from you. The nostalgia was where you moved away from home and wanted to come back. In my article, uh, I examined how the emotional blockage generated by anxiety affects the way in which individuals experience their, their environment. And I discussed how a phenomenological approach to emotional geography can help us to describe the phenomena of solastalgia, otherwise known as climatic anxiety. Simply put, Susie's article focuses on the phenomenon of solastalgia and how it can negatively impact the lives of those experiencing it.
Um, up the top, there's a white blob in the mine. That's one of the world's largest machines. It's called a uh, dragline or electric shovel. And in a single scoop, it takes out about a chunk the size of this room of the earth and then dumps it into a truck that's roughly uh, got a bucket the size of this room. So bucket by bucket, truckload by truckload, that hole is being dug to get the black stuff at the bottom, which is the coal. So they blow up the soil. They put these spoil mountains of everything they dig out. And then this mine is still proceeding. It's, it's still uh, growing. This photo was taken in 2008. It's now ginormous. And right next door to it was a world-class vineyard that won world's best Chardonnay one year uh, for, uh, uh, yeah, for its, its projects. Well, it, uh, it's also uh, the green fields in the background are horse studs, vineyards, cattle grazing. Uh, it used to be a big dairying area. And I interviewed people to find out whether or not my perception that this landscape was damaging people at any kind of uh, veracity. And one of the women uh, said, you know, look, it, it, uh, we're left with nothing but the final void, a deeply emotional response to what's going on. An Aboriginal man I interviewed said that he can't look at it, so he drives hundreds of unnecessary kilometres so that he can't see the landscape that's being desolated. So he says it makes you wild. And, uh, and when I interviewed him, you know, you have to look someone in the eye when they're telling you it makes you wild. Uh, he, he was so uh, insulted and outraged by it, he couldn't really express himself beyond that. And you can see, uh, you know, they call them fugitive emissions. The methane is leaking out of this mine. The coal is exposed to the, to the, ox to the air and is oxygenating. The whole thing is a toxic mess. Solastalgia is the distress caused by environmental change the depression that it creates. It is a concept derived to give greater meaning and clarity to the distress involved. This is the distress produced by environmental change impacting on people when they are directly connected to their home environment. Survivors of hurricanes, storms, Tsunamis have mental health breakdowns. Solastalgia is a term that Glenn Albright, a scholar philosopher from Australia, describes as place-based distress from a lived experience of unwelcome environmental change to one's home. I know in a number of his writings, when they refer to place-based, it's often very specific. But uh, for those that are indigenous uh, to this world, we often think of place as all, you know, all of what the world encompasses. So when I think of solastalgia, I like to extend that definition to the entire planet. And it's an inability to seek solace from a beloved place that is being desolated. A Hopi term refers to it as a disintegration of human life when we are out of balance with the world. The Inuit talk about solastalgia or this term or this feeling as a friend acting strangely or unpredictably. And one of the things with our indigenous ways of knowing and connecting with the natural world, all that lives and inhabits uh, this, this world are our relatives. 
So that term friend, a friend acting strangely or unpredictably is, you know, that we're noticing changes, changes in tapping for maple syrup, changes on when the, uh, the leaves turn or when we go out ricing. A friend is acting differently than what we have seen over the years. Um, I define it as mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual hurt due to witnessing harm to one's relative, the natural world. In fact, I also think of it as a, a secondary trauma. We are actively seeing someone, something, the natural world that we love, get actively impacted. Watching the city of your birth and childhood change, possibly forever, will have an effect on you. For many people, this effect is the overwhelming anxiety of soul nostalgia. As Susie writes, a space that used to be a childhood favorite can become a trigger for intense emotional pain given its state of present disruption. There is a story that when Karl Marx came here, he saw the workers and the condition of the workers in Maastricht And it was from that, seeing the workers and the state of the workers, because he was a middle-class person, that he began his theories on communism. It is begonnen, the whole anti-question, the anti-afgravingen, in a time that the people om werkgelegenheid vroegen. Dus the word vrouw is geaccepteerd, Alleen maar om werk te hebben. En de NC boet werk aan Hey, in this lesson, I will ask you to contemplate your perception of nature to potentially change it to a more appropriate idea. The introduction of agriculture had the most serious impact on nature, and importantly, it led humans to distinguish between cultivated and wild nature. In the course of history, the aspects of nature and culture became increasingly distant. But nowadays, the borders are diffuse and blur more and more into each other. The separation between nature and culture is seen by many philosophers as extremely problematic. They think that there is no need to distinguish, and that it's much more important to understand that all forms of life influence each other to form a complicated network on our planet. This is because when nature dies, culture is also doomed to fail. The philosopher Bruno Latour is convinced that we have reached a point where the climate crisis is so great that our entire thinking and actions should be called into question. Our man-made presence in today's environment is complex. We humans have always tried to control nature in order to turn it into a safe place. But it is this tendency that gives us the feeling of being above things. But our picturesque ideas are key to a fundamental human-centered, anthropocentric way of looking at things. Maybe it helps to look at things from a totally different perspective. By this I mean from Jean Baudrillard's perspective. According to him, the postmodern society we live in is a universe of simulations. In his opinion, we live in a self-produced world that no longer refers to something real, 
a distinction between the real and the virtual is no longer possible. What is simulated is no longer an image of a real thing. Instead, it forms the real. Hyperreality thus describes the inability to distinguish a simulation of reality from reality itself. Today, we are irrevocably uncoupled from an objective reality, and our current behaviors will lead to further and even more extreme forms of simulations. Whether we will still be able to recognize that we have completely detached ourselves from the real is questionable. Obvious illusions, like Disneyland, are an attempt to secure the fundamental perception of reality by providing the real through the imaginary. The artificial world that was created with all its exaggeration and idealization, thus serves humans as proof of their existence. Every one of us is exposed to an ever-increasing flood of hyperreal images. We perceive and accept them consciously or unconsciously. They develop into models, even if these images do not necessarily reflect real nature or something natural. I know it can be frightening to observe people who are losing their connection to the natural, the essence that ultimately makes us human. Therefore, I want to give you a question. Does our world of images still allow authentic experiences in nature at all? I think about the fires that take place in California, the wildfires, and relatives that live over there to, and, and see the impact of what's going on there the flooding or the hurricane seasons impacting relatives in those areas. I grew up in the Red River Valley and the flood of 97 especially sticks out for me. We've had numerous floods in that Red River Valley and um, it hurts. You know, it, it not only hurts because it, 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 it impacts um, our human things, but it impacts our human relationship to the land. Trees dying, trees taken out, um, animals, birds, winged, four-legged swimmers and crawlers are all impacted. And, and that hurts when we're in relationship with the natural world. So nostalgia, even though Glenn Albright started talking about this term in the last couple of decades, is, is nothing new to our Indigenous communities. It has impacted the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island of North America for over 500 years. We have watched the impact of settlers and colonization um, impact um, the lands and the waters, the loss of trees and forests and uh, wildlife and birds that we've loved and connected with for, for a long, long time. So this feeling, this, this sadness, this anger, this grief, it is nothing new to our Indigenous people, but Western science is, is noting it more and more in, in human populations today. I'm on a journey, as we all are, to a place that often seems impossible to find. For so long, I have simply existed. Just another grain of sand blowing in the wind. And then, something in me began to change. 
My eyes opened to a new horizon, and I came to a realization. The earth has a heartbeat. It feels, it breathes, it hears, and sometimes it speaks. But to understand what it's truly saying takes something extraordinary. This I have not learned easily. It took an escape from the artificial, from the binds of technology, a venture to the unknown, bearing off the path of the road most traveled, to a place of beauty and wonder. Perhaps this is where great philosophers, whose words echo through time, are born. Nature has something to say to each of us, and to each of us it says something unique. To me, it says, be as I am. Be great. Be magnificent. Be wise. And never stop growing. I wake up in the morning and hold innocent happiness in my warm, sleepy hands. I breathe in with the earth, this time hoping to melt, mixed with the cosmos. Space blows faster, pushing against and around me. My softness radiates, pulse, connect, pulse, feel, a shift. External becoming internal and light inside flows free, twirling and dancing, fleeting. My worlds rumble then overlap. What was hidden in the night and the above, the below, the surrounding, bound alongside me, bearing down. An experience of existence, an alternate universe, completely binary, invades my calm. The fluidity of union and compassion hits an unfathomable resistance and I falter. From big clouds and winds pushed forth from the man's lungs float ravaged worlds to me. We are each on our own, close in proximity yet no effusion of togetherness. We each speak an alien, selfish language. I yearn not to feel fear and disconnect, but instead to feel freedom, to exist with joy. Incongruous beings have taken my soul. We have mutilated the life given to us, the water, the wind, the dust, destroyed and replaced with lifeless inanimate. A colossal devastation. All roots of meaning have begun to rot. The heroes who helped have gone into hiding, wishing to stay uncorrupted. But for the rest of us, I mourn that the new will never understand flowing free as one. Our destination is desolate, Isolation devouring all possibility of sublimity. We have dammed up all that flows. There is no escape to that eternal, unique vibrancy. My happiness is not innocent, but naive, and at odds with reality. The disconnect of the conscious from the soul. As the new breathe in, they will never know that the earth once breathed with them. Eva. Eva. 
Listen. Um, sure. Yeah, I guess uh, this film was born from a deep need to communicate sort of the inner landscape that I was carrying around with me. Um, to the outer world. Um, I would often find myself sort of ranting in you know, dark corners at social gatherings about the end of the world and not necessarily having a great effect <laughs> or the desired effect. Um, so I was trying to, I guess, figure out a way to communicate, um, you know, grief and worry and anxiety uh, in a way that would resonate with people. Um, and so Solastalgia was born. Um, the specific inspiration for it, like I do remember sort of the, the day the film sort of popped into my head and it was a day after I'd seen another film, a documentary called Chasing Coral uh, at a film festival here with the director Jeff Orlowski was present and he spoke after the film and the whole experience was just very moving. I was actually weeping um, after the film and uh, the following day, um, much like the character in the film that I made, uh, I, I collapsed in the shower really. I just sort of broke down um, with an overwhelming sense of grief. It had turned from sort of ranting and, um, you know, anger and frustration at different systems that uh, aren't working um, to just an overwhelming sadness in that moment. And I thought that that was you know, like maybe a powerful way into this conversation that so often um, is, I, uh, you know, it can be very polarizing because of its sort of political weight. I thought maybe reaching people through a conversation that's more personal about grief and our, our inner connection to the outer everything uh, might be a way Anyway, that was the attempt, so. That, and, and in relation to being a parent, um, well, yeah, I mean, that just uh, deepens the concern all the more, for sure. I, I'm captivated by this piece, particularly because of the, the quality of um, sort of the dissolving of realities and, and um, 
I know it's described as like a a vision quest. Um, like Ava, the the mother in the piece, is described that she's on she goes on a vision quest, and I I wonder like like what sparked that? Is that is that sort of your experience with grief? Um, I think what sparked that was um, I was just trying to express, I guess, or um, articulate a process that I find helpful when I get sort of overridden with a sense of anxiety or worry or, you know, anger at our species for our um, seeming endless sort of greed and short-sightedness. Um, and, you know, this is based on advice that this has given me and I'm by far not the first to, to sort of go through this process, but I do find it very helpful um, to take a step back from this sort of sense of we need to act and it's too much and I don't know what to do and nobody seems to be listening and half the time I'm not even listening and it just works itself into a frenzy and then I think wait a second no this is like whatever is happening in our planet right now is part of a story that is much uh, greater and deeper and wider and longer than uh, any uh, individual human let alone the human species could even comprehend we are part of a cycle and a system. We're part of this giant, beautiful story of growth and rebirth and destruction and decomposition. And not to sort of like nullify the need for action, but to sort of alleviate the sense of like overwhelming sort of guilt for the human species. I do like to sort of remember that we're part of a story that's much bigger than us. Um, so that was, that's what that vision quest is about. It's sort of connecting the mundane and the particular lived human experience with like the web of life, uh, which we are all part of, despite the fact that we may be spending a lot of time and, you know, box stores and watching Netflix. And that big web of existence goes on in and out. Yeah. entering the sixth grade extinction? Will that be debit or credit? One thing that I, I have found as a result of, you know, maintaining my interest in this area of, um, of um, you know, intergenerational trauma, um, 
I do have a PhD sitting at home somewhere uh, that I never ever put in um, on intergenerational trauma and I went around the world looking at other First Nations experiences. Um, and we have the same situation that we have now in Australia. High uh, incarceration rates, high suicide rates, high drug and alcohol abuse and high um, domestic violence abuse. And all of this comes directly from um, that trauma that we are still dealing with internally. <clears throat> but the, there is a word I, I, I was uh, following up on some work that was being done where, the mining, where mining was taking place and uh, looking at the psychological impacts it had on our people, young and old. And one of the things that I found was a word called solastalgia. And solastalgia, um, this, this arose as a result of some research that was being done on, in the Hunter Valley by non-Aboriginal people who were looking and speaking with old farmers who, who still lived there. And these old farmers were becoming very, very um, lost in their mind because they were watching <clears throat> those who didn't sell their farms were watching these coal mines develop around them and not only that they were watching hills being torn apart and torn down they were watching big holes in the ground they were watching these mountains of of um over um overburden from the mines being stacked up and um one of the one of the most interesting things was that um these people we're starting to get sick um, emotionally, mentally, and um, uh, spiritually, and, and, and physically. And so uh, they, they became ill because they watched the landscape that they grew up with change before their eyes. And it, this country that they grew up with and were born into and took over their old grandparents' farms no longer looked like what it was when they were children and growing up. So their memories were being disturbed and, um, and they, they were finding it exceedingly difficult to cope with what they were watching, this whole change of the environment around them. Looking at it, you don't feel like coming here. Though, though for the persons that come here new, uh, they say it's paradise, but uh, they should have seen it when I seen it first. Then, then it was really paradise. You see, our problem now is that, you know, when we drive, I listen to Aboriginal people along the way all over, and, they, they, and they're basically crying, and they see, because they see emus trapped in these fences, they see kangaroos trapped in these fences, they can't move from one area to another. 
and white people are killing them because they turn all the water off in these paddocks where they got them locked in. And these animals, there's massive killing that's going on within these areas. Now, these things are our totems. They're our ancestry beliefs. We have connection to them through um, family, through spirit, through um, our own um, origins in terms of um, um, setting ourselves into our clan system. And, our, and, and so we're watching all of this going on. And this is having enormous impact on our people, especially people, you know, in their 50s, 60s and 70s and 80s, watching this this change that's taking place right across the country. Land being cleared, water and rivers drying up because they've dammed them and they're selling water to irrigators across the country. And we're watching our fish die. We're watching, you know, there's, there's just so much that's going on in the natural world. And that's is having significant impact on our people. And so you've got a lot of young people who are saying to me, you know, what hope is there for us? You know, how do we deal with this? What do do we do? Where do we fit anymore? Do we have a country anymore? And that country no longer looks like what what it's supposed to be. You know, and and even, you know, my children in their 30s and mid-30s, um, you know, they take their kids out and they're saying, you know, the river's not what it used to be when Dad used to take us out here and teach us how to catch fish and teach us all about the stories along the river. And our, our cultural icons are being cut down because you've got all the old scarred trees along the riverbanks. They're being cut down because these white people are irrigating in these areas and they're taking the trees and plants and native shrubs right out of the riparian areas all around. So the country... <clears throat> so it's just not us now being removed from um, our lands, but those who still live on the lands and who come home on a regular basis, are just watching a totally, looking at a totally different landscape uh, to that which they knew. And this is having an enormous psychological impact on our people. And this translates then to medical health, medical illness, because, you know, you, you become sick. It, it, it makes you sick. And, um, you know, and when you see this, this, this thuggery and this destructiveness that's going on out uh, in the bush, yeah, our people are just, just lost. And, you know, you throw your arms up and then you say, well, they took our identity, they took our language, they took our dance, they took our ceremony, and now they're reforming, terraforming our country. <laughs> Welcome to this lesson. I'm glad you got this far. All our lessons are designed to make you understand that changing what we say to ourselves is a very effective way to cope with anxieties and to modify your behavior. As in the previous episodes, we will further contemplate our actions and thoughts to potentially change them. This time, we will discuss them in terms of humanization. Let me start with a study conducted by American scientists. These researchers found, in the course of their experiment, that we would rather buy a fruit if it has human characteristics. But what does this result actually tell us? In fables and fairy tales, humanization of nature is a frequent trope. It seems that this form of storytelling is an instinctive need to us humans. Look at these happy banana faces, and then try to see human characteristics in other life forms in your everyday life. This can help you to empathize better with other living beings. 
We tend to humanize because our knowledge about humans is more accurate and easier to retrieve than knowledge about animals or plants. The philosopher Robert Spaben even says that we have to look at non-human life anthropomorphically in order to do it justice. In his opinion, we are trapped in our own being, which is okay and not meant disrespectfully. So don't feel guilty and use your humanized way of looking at non-human life to improve your relationship with it. What's problematic is that we often have bigger difficulties empathizing with plants. The scientist Frantisek Beluska claims that plants are more intelligent organisms than we have so far assumed. Current research claims that plants have senses and communicate with each other and their environment. Plants are capable of remembering and even manipulating other species. They have the ability to gather information from their surroundings and can remember things and share them with others to improve their living conditions. If scientists are right and plants have a certain level of consciousness, we definitely need to treat them differently. Our focus should be on adapting our actions to the idea that we are one species among many and thus are part of a large and complex system. We should not forget that we only exist because other life does and must therefore question our constant feelings of singularity and superiority. To summarize it in three words, life forms are interconnected. When we talked, we talked about how both clients and professionals now can actually be having the same issues of anxiety and depression around um, climate change. Um, what form do these feelings usually take? And um, are there especially helpful ways that you've found to address them in practice? Um, these kind of chronic stresses and emotions that people are experiencing related to climate change are really hard feelings to experience. And they're often sometimes hard to put words to, especially if people are feeling alone in those feelings. Um, I can see it's like a hybrid version of me being in nature. I've been asked quite a few times this question about, um, well, like this world in such a sad state and environment in such a sad state. Why now, when everything is so urgent, do I feel like I need to create an artwork? And um, to me, it was always clear that that's exactly the time when one needs to create an artwork. Knowing that you love the Earth changes you, activates you to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel the Earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. This is really why I made my daughters learn to garden, so they would always have a mother to love them long after I'm gone. Two months ago, this looked so parched. It was so terrible. These swallows were so thin. It was, it was like, like you could hear them scream. 
it was terrible. I, I really did not enjoy living here at that time just because nature was looking so terribly, terribly parched. It was painful. In psychology or in the literature, you see a term that's called solastalgia, which talks about the sadness that results from seeing one's natural environment deteriorate or maybe just change and not feeling at home anymore in that environment, feeling absolutely helpless about it. If the swallows here around us perish and vanish, there's very little we feel we can do about that. So that, that can indeed lead to intense feelings of, of grief and sadness. A term that I often talk to my clients about is one that was coined by Glenn Albrecht, who is a environmental studies professor in Australia. He coined a term called solastalgia. And that word really uh, was defined as having a, a sense of desolation or a sense of melancholia about what's happening to a person's home place. Um, so if we have these unacknowledged feelings of helplessness or hopelessness about what's happening to our home place and we have no place to go with that, mm -hmm. that can be really difficult. Mm -hmm. It can come through in a variety of ways. People can start to um, have feelings of um, deep depression. They can have feelings of fatalism, uh, that things don't matter. Um, people can have thoughts of suicide. If people have been directly impacted by climate trauma or an event, they can experience PTSD mm. and symptoms of PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, and we also see an increase in substance abuse when a community has been impacted by these severe weather events. Oh, it's not good. The place that we're standing in is actually was destined to be a car parking yard for Kamrajar Port. And it was filled to the to that height with dredge soil, dredge sand from the sea. Because of fisher folk agitation and the legal uh, advocacy, where fisher folk in solidarity with people from the city managed to spotlight this violation and force Kamrajar Fort to remove this. But if you look at this area, this is like heavily damaged. All this is fly ash. It's about eight feet deep of fly ash. And this has to be removed if this wetland is to regain its original character. So one of the nice features about this place is like trees like this, these old banyan trees and you know these small little waterways which are heading towards the lagoon. 
now it's like most of this is gone it's getting chopped up at least next to the lagoon all of most of these trees these really old banyan trees have gotten cut down health effects climate change is going to bring with us pretty much for everybody. And then on top of all of that, I had a child and uh, that really got me to wonder what would happen in his life. If you think about young children's education, you cannot worry them too much. You will imprint them with thoughts that they should not have. On the other hand, you have to start early on to enable them to make changes in life that will really have an impact. However, Glenn Albrecht also coined another term, solophilia, the antidote to solastalgia. Solophilia is the love of the totality of our place, the relationships and willingness to accept in solidarity and affiliation with others, the political responsibility for the health of our earth, our home. Solophilia, in short, is the desire to build life instead of destroy it. It's protecting your home by being part of the solution, not part of the problem. I feel a desperation to protect the earth instead of watching it die and being a complacent part of destroying it. The more people who start to feel solophilic in their lives, the faster we'll tackle the biggest crisis humanity's ever faced in climate change. Earth is the only home we have, a tiny speck floating aimlessly through the universe. We're incredibly lucky that we have the earth, yet we're so arrogant we think we can simply destroy it just to line our pockets. In doing so, there will be extreme consequences. What we've seen so far with climate change is merely scratching the surface of what's to come. We need to wake up and we need to act. Now. We need the antidote to solastalgia. We need solophilia. So I thought that solophilia, the idea of the the coming together of people, the acting in uh, in unity, in solidarity, and that, that it's something that is affiliate. It's something that we should have a love of doing rather than doing it because it, it's a duty or a necessity. So in our research, we have been looking at different forms of psychological coping with these ecological stressors that we perceive. And they, again, they range. They range from forms which we sometimes call uh, maladaptive. Uh, they, they just help us to not have to constantly mentally deal with it. You know, forms such as denial, denial of one's own role in all of that. It's a, it's a coping mechanism. It, it, it works well psychologically to remove some of the stress, but the stressor remains. And then there are those which we would say are proactive ways of coping. Um, getting more information, actually engaging in behaviors that try to reduce the effects of climate change. And we generally know that people who feel empowered and committed to do something have positive mental health outcomes. The new world is being shaped by the Anthropocene and, and its leaders, if we can call them that, right now. And I don't see much of a future for that uh, evolutionary path for humans. So the new world that I would like to see for my granddaughter and, and children is the symbiocene. It's an intensely pos positive, uh, ridiculously optimistic view of the future, where positive Earth emotions will triumph over the uh, the, the negative, where 
somebody in the Oxford Concise Dictionary, the E version, gets rid of the word solastalgia in the year 2100 because it's become redundant. There's nobody experiencing it any longer. You know, I'll be well composted by then, but I will turn over gently and think, ah, that was a good job. <laughs> I created something that had to be got rid of.